John chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 34 this morning. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not, uh, would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Have you ever, have you ever misplaced something that's kind of a silly question? Of course, of course you have. Uh, maybe it's your keys, your wallet shoes, your phone, you lost your car in the Walmart parking lot. Um, I find that in my current stage of life, I'm continually misplacing things more regularly than the past. I spent an hour in Menards. <laughs> I spent an hour in Menards the other day picking up a ton of different things, and, uh, and I went to pay, and I found my wallet in my pocket, but my keys weren't there. I was like, where are my keys? And I went out into the parking lot, and sure enough, they were still in the ignition of my truck, and they'd been there for an hour, windows down. I, yeah, that's just, that's the stage of life I feel like I'm in right now. And, and uh, so if you want to steal a truck, look for mine wherever it is in town. You'll probably be able to get away with it pretty easily. Is that your truck? Of course it is. I've got my keys right here. The qu what about fear? Have you ever misplaced that? Have you ever misplaced fear? Now, I'm asking that qu question, and that implies that some, some kind of fear is healthy. That there is actually a healthy fear that we can have. When, when one of our 
children was pretty young, he announced that if he jumped off our roof, he'd probably get hurt. Yeah, ju- yeah, you would. Jumping 20 feet to the ground would hurt a three-year-old. Yes, very good. So you want your kids to have a healthy fear of jumping off the roof. Misplaced fear is being overly afraid of something that might sting a bit with no lasting consequences, while something much larger with far-reaching consequences lurks around the corner. If you're trapped in a cage with a starving lion, you wouldn't be afraid of a bee that's buzzing around your head. If you are hurtling down the interstate uh, and your brakes go out, you wouldn't think to yourself, uh, I'm, I'm closing in on 3,000 miles. I think I need an oil change. That would be an example of misplaced fear. As followers of Jesus, we must place our fears properly. And Jesus had something to say about this in the Gospel of Matthew. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, that's God. The creator God is the one who we need to have a healthy fear of. He's made us and we belong to him. We should properly place our fears. And he's at the top of the list. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we have great promises and assurances that God will not pour out his wrath on us. On the cross, Jesus took that for us. Jesus took that for us. And so now our fear of God looks a little different. It looks different. And it frees us because of Jesus' work on the cross. We are free to live a life that honors God in obedience to him. And also frees us to properly place our fears. Think of your relationship. Dads, it's Father's Day. Think of your relationship with your children. Your children should have a healthy fear of you as an authority figure in their life. As one who has been placed above them by God. To discipline them. To instruct them. To correct them when they need correction. That doesn't mean that they're not your child, but what it does mean is that you have a responsibility before God to teach them about God and the things of the world in light of who he is. There is a healthy fear that exists in a parent-child relationship. And when we're brought into God's family in Christ, when we're brought into God's family, we still have a healthy fear of our heavenly, heavenly Father. What God tells us in his word then becomes our primary directive in life. Because we can properly place our fears now. We can properly understand that the things of this material, earthly realm can easily and quickly be snatched away from us, but we don't fear that. We have a greater understanding of eternity. The things of this world may inflict great pain and suffering on us, but we also know that the things of this material, temporary world can't kill our soul. So in this passage this morning, with Jesus interacting with people and we're told about some motives and some thoughts and things going on behind the scenes, 
In this passage this morning, we meet two groups of people. Those who can't see the danger, the thing that they should be afraid of. And then those who can see the danger, but willfully ignore it. Those who see the danger, but misplace their fears. Both of these groups are in grave danger and must serve as a warning to us. These two groups of people choose not to believe in a saving way. And again, these things must be a warning to us, the way that John unpacks this for us. So let's think about these two groups of people this morning. First, those who can't see the danger. Those who simply can't see the, the lion in the cage while the bee buzzes around their head. Those who are thinking about that oil change on the interstate while their brakes are out. Those who can't see the danger. Jesus just finished, if you'll remember last week where we were at the end or in the middle of John chapter 12, Jesus just finished talking to the crowd about the way he was going to die. So in verses 32 and 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John comments, he says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now the crowd is confused. That's where we left off, but the crowd is clearly perplexed by what Jesus has just told them because they're beginning to think this guy is the Messiah. But then look at what they say in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, that he's eternal, that he's not going to go away. Yet Jesus just said, I'm going to die. They're beginning to put that together at least. And they're wondering, well, how can you be the Messiah and how can you remain forever if you're about to die. Now we know the answer to that because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus goes into the grave and then he walks out three days later. But for these people, they don't fully understand that reality yet. If you're going to die, then you can't, you're not the Messiah then, huh? Note that Jesus doesn't answer this question explicitly though. Look at, look at verse, again, the verse 34. You say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So that, but look at how Jesus responds in verse 35. Look at your Bible. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is telling them that what he is saying is true despite their ability to grasp how it can be true. They're getting bogged down in sort of all of these details. The the law, it says the Christ remains forever. The Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? How are you going to die and claim to be the Christ? If you've ever watched a movie or been reading a book, a work of fiction, and you know that you're sort of coming to the end, and the author has kept introducing all of these problems to you, and you think to yourself, how is he going to wrap this up in the last like 30 pages of this 800-page novel? How is he going to get all of that packed in here, and how are we going to ever have any resolution? So you theorize, and you kind of wonder, and then you read the 30 pages, and you figure it out. 
The only thing that you can really do, though, in that instance is to finish the book or the movie. You trust the author to resolve those problems, and sometimes he, he doesn't. Sometimes those problems are like, wow, that was not satisfying. That was not a satisfying ending to that film or to that book. You have to wait and see if it all comes together. Now, God is not a human author, right? So everything that he says that will happen will, in fact, happen. So when Jesus is talking about being the light here, he's saying, the things that I am saying to you are true despite the reality that you don't know how they're going to work themselves out over the course of this next week. Sometimes we're let down by human authors. Resolutions seem weak, unplanned, underdeveloped. But we don't have to worry about that with God. And so Jesus wants these men and these women in the crowd who are listening to him to understand, to know that he is the light and he's walking with them and everything that he's revealing to them in this time can be trusted. Everything that he's saying to them can be believed and will come to pass. He is the Christ and he will be lifted up. Friends, in our lives, we might not know what's around the next corner, but we do have the light to remain on the right path. We do have what we need to know to trust Jesus with tomorrow. We do have what we need to trust Jesus with the rest of our lives. Jesus says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Friends, if you're in Christ, you know where you're going. You know where you're headed. These people who Jesus is speaking to need to receive Jesus as the light by, with, or by which to walk. Jesus is God's plan to redeem a people for himself. And Jesus is God's plan revealed to his people. The way that God would, the way that God would redeem a people for himself was standing there in bodily form in front of them. Again, these people, though, they were bogged down in these details and they're theorizing about how Jesus was the Messiah, yet saying that he would die. And they needed to receive, they needed to believe in Jesus as light, follow him as the one sent from God, and wait to see the resolution and trust him with all the results. So we're told, though, in verse 37, we're told uh, that though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They couldn't see the danger at, at large. They continued to walk in darkness. They said, that thing that might be coming around the corner in my life, Jesus has no power over it. The thing that might be coming around the corner in his life, his death, Jesus has no power over it. John then quotes Isaiah twice. He says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The first one comes from Isaiah 53. Lord, who, this is Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He quotes from Isaiah and look at the, the word arm and to whom the arm of, the, this is God's salvation. The arm of the Lord is always associated in the Old Testament with the salvation, the deliverance of God's people. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, Jesus here is the clear expression of God's plan to redeem this people. The arm of the Lord about to carry out salvation for a people. And they, ha- they cannot see it. They cannot see it. And then John quotes from Isaiah 6.10. He says uh, that they did not believe not only could, oh, but before, leading up into it in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God prevents these people. Again, it says, John, John says, could not believe, could not, could not believe. God prevents these people from believing in Jesus. God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And God does not heal them. Wait. If you're thinking to yourself, like, what, who, what is this? Where is this coming from? Maybe you've read this before and been perplexed by it and moved on. But, but think about this more deeply with me. God is keeping these people from believing in Jesus. He's actively keeping these people from believing in Jesus. That's what we're told. What does that mean? What does it mean for us? Look at verse 39 again. Could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. Many throughout church history have taken this to mean would not believe, but there's a progression here that we need to see. When John says could not believe, he first means would not and then could not. Let me explain. These people reject Jesus over and over and over again. We've seen that in John's gospel. We've been here for a minute. And so you've seen these people, I, I'm not, I see it, but I don't believe it. I see Jesus doing, performing these signs and wonders before my eyes but I don't believe it. Or something else comes up and they just run away and chase that thing. These people rejecting Jesus over and over and over again. And so what's happening here and what, why John quotes Isaiah chapter 6 here is because God is now giving them over to those desires that they have. They would not believe becomes could not believe. They were so hardened by their own willful rejection of Jesus that they become incapable of receiving Jesus. Let me say that again. They were so hardened by their own willful rejection of Jesus that they became incapable of receiving Jesus. Paul brings this idea up in Romans chapter 1. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God, here it is, gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
God gave them up. Those who loved their sin so much. Those who loved their sin so much. God gave them up to chase it. To run after it. Uninhibited by calls for repentance and faith. This is a solemn warning. God does give people up who do not honor him. He lets them go and pursue their blatant, unrepentant idolatry. There there are many like this in our world who actively reject God and who are hostile towards him, who deny him over and over and over again. And God gives them up when they are no longer where there are no longer any calls for repentance and faith. When men and women are so entrenched in sin, then God gives them up and no longer are there those who stand between them and eternity in hell. There are no longer from those who have trusted Jesus calls to turn from their sin and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is, this is a, for those of us who are in Christ as a local church, this needs to be a clear and, uh, and, and distinct call to us. You as a Christian might be, or might be the way that God is standing between belief and eternal damnation. If you're wondering why you should share the gospel, if you're wondering, if you find yourself in many situations with unbelievers and you regularly have opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers and you're not taking them, you might be the, the way in which God is going to call men and women back to him. Let me say that more clearly because that didn't seem to land. You might be the reason or the only thing standing between people in eternal damnation. God might be using you as a, as a means to call them to repentance and faith. And if you go away out of their lives, that might be it. They might be given over to their sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are Christ's ambassadors. You might be the last mirror reflecting the light of Jesus Christ to that individual so that they might have their eyes opened to the truth. This is an urgent thing. If what is, this is, tr- this is the truth of God before us this morning. If God does, and he does, give sinners over to their sin, we must have a sense of urgency in calling men and women to repentance and belief. We can no longer be concerned about offending someone's sensibilities by coming at them with the truth of Jesus Christ. We can no longer play patty cake and dance around the issue with people who are careening towards an eternity spent separated from God in hell.
so that they might not walk in darkness any longer, but find the path that leads to life. God is sovereign over the work. The work of salvation belongs to God, but that does not mean that you and I aren't responsible to be the very thing that he has called us to be, his ambassadors. Those who cannot see the danger are in jeopardy of being consumed by it. The danger is that God would give them over to their sin, to pursue their sinful passions unchecked. They must come to Jesus. They must come to the light and believe him so that they may remain in darkness and follow him and see the one who sent him. Jesus is the only way. We like to say it, but the implications need to fall on us heavily. Jesus is the only way. And so to allow and to, to, to allow for others to continually think that there might be another way, that there might their good works might just balance the scale in the end. We have to plead urgently with men and women saying, Jesus is the only way to be saved from your sin. Because that thing that we must fear, the wrath of God for us who are in Christ has been poured out on Christ on the cross for us. But those who are not in Christ, the wrath of God will be poured out on them for eternity. Plead with those who love their sin to turn from their sin and walk according to the light, believing Jesus. Those who do not have the last day in mind will misplace that fear. In verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says in the verse before, I do not judge him, for I do not come into the world to judge the world. To judge the world. That does not mean that Jesus won't judge the world. It just means the first time he came bringing salvation to the world, the second time he comes with judgment. The judgment that is coming for those who reject Jesus and his word, there's a tidal wave offshore And the only way to see it properly is to have the light that Jesus gives to those who have faith in him. Those who cannot see the danger clearly. The second group of people though we meet is those who see the danger but misplace their fears. Those who see clearly that who who Jesus is. We're told that they miscalculate the danger because of what they love. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but they did not, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Many believe in Jesus, even authorities, even those with power in the in this in society. But they believed in him, but this is not a saving kind of faith because they're unwilling to give up anything for it. 
They saw the signs, they saw the wonders, and they might have even said that Jesus was the Messiah, but they weren't ready to serve him by following him everywhere he would go because of a love they had. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These people misplaced a fear. They feared the Pharisees more than they feared God. They did not fear a God who on the last day would bring judgment. They feared the Pharisees who would boot them out of the synagogue. Remember the man in chapter 9 who was born blind? At the end of that, uh, he gets kicked out of the synagogue by the, by the religious authorities. To be kicked out of the synagogue would have been really bad news for your reputation. Now, the man born blind um, didn't have much of a reputation to begin with, but these men have a reputation that can be tarnished. And so they have things all wonky here. We learned that last week, those who serve Jesus follow Jesus, and that the Father honors those who follow Jesus everywhere that Jesus goes. But to receive honor and glory from the Father in this life, you must be willing to lose honor and glory in this life. Verse 43. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. To receive honor and glory from the Father in the next life, you must be willing to lose honor and glory in this life. The positive opinions of men and women and the people in our society, they wax and they wane. The positive opinions and the reputation that you have comes and goes with the snap of a finger. People are fickle. One day they like you, the next day they're not sure about you, the next day they, they hate you. The, the positive opinion that God has of you does not change. Those who are in Christ, you are a child of God and nothing changes that status. Those who are outside of Christ, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is set against that individual. It's not being poured out on them actively. That comes when judgment happens on the last day. But but the wrath of God is set against those who are not in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, though, have the positive opinion of our Heavenly Father. We have been received as sons and daughters of God. And so, when our, this is where they get this wrong, when our reputation is at stake because of the opinions of men that change and they ebb and they flow, we can look to the one who had, whose opinion of us never changes. If you're in Christ, God loves you with the same passionate love with which he loves Jesus. If you're wondering, if you're in Christ, if you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you repented of your sin and turned from it, if you're wondering what, it, what God thinks of you in this moment, just think about what he thinks about Jesus Christ. Because you are in him. Like that in is very literal. You are in him. And when he looks at you, he sees his son. 
These men misplace their fear. They misplace their priorities. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Can people offer that to you? Of course not. People can't offer you the love of God that never changes. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your best friend. None of those, if you're looking to those people for that fulfillment, you will never find it. The positive opinion that honor that the Father will honor you with doesn't come from your good work. It doesn't come from your obedience or you're doing the right thing. That the opinion that God has of you comes entirely from Jesus Christ. Entirely from Jesus Christ. If it came from a different source other than Jesus Christ, any other source, it would change. Jesus Christ paid for your sin with his blood. He clothes you in his righteousness. You are in him. And all of this is ours when we believe in the Lord Jesus who reveals himself right here to us. Therefore, we must fear God and not man. We cannot love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If you want to know what you truly love, consider what you're afraid to lose here. Are you afraid to lose the honor that and glory that your Father is going, has promised you in eternity? I've got good news for you. You can't. If you're in Christ, you can't lose it. It is, it is secured, sealed, finalized, ratified, any word that you want to use. It's over. It's done. Jesus said it is finished. Nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can pluck you out of Jesus' hand. All of that is eternally secure in Christ. There is nothing that you can do, nothing that a man can do, nothing that all of the power on all of the earth is mustered against you could take away from you. The honor and the glory that are in, that the Father has for you are secured in Christ. If, but, if you're afraid to lose the positive opinion of a person, even if just temporarily, we find ourselves in the same position as these authorities who feared men, who feared the Pharisees, and we're always in jeopardy of misplacing that fear. These people, they love the glory that comes from man, and so they fear, they fear those who could rob them of it. They needed to fear God rather, the one who gave them life and who sent his son to redeem them. Eternal glory held up before them, but fear of man drove them to seek the glory that comes from man. What if we got kicked out of the synagogue? 
What if? So the question's for you as we wrap up our time together. Are you misplacing your fears? Are you regularly afraid of the bad opinions of man, forgetting just how fickle they are? If you're in Christ, would you hide the fact that you are in Christ? Would you hide that fact that you're a follower of Jesus and even be ashamed of it in some instances in order to maintain good standing with and have the good opinions of man? Maybe you've done that recently, and this is something that Christians can slip back into and do slip back into. Sometimes Christians do this by getting too cozy with the world. Sometimes we're willing to take on worldly things and let them slip into our lives because we are afraid that people will think of us like stodgy, uptight, weird, fuddy-duddy, following Jesus' boring people. But we should, we should be concerned if we hear like, you know, Christians are usually pretty weird, but you're fine. Because, now if you've shown them kindness or compassion, like Christ chose kindness and compassion, if you've spoken truth to them um, and followed Jesus into obedience, and that resonates with an unbeliever, then good. That good. But, if you're just giving the appearance that you can love the things of the world and also follow Jesus, and an unbeliever finds that cool or okay or all right, fine, that's a red flag. If unbelievers find attending church or Bible reading or prayer or the fellowship of saints to be confusing, boring, stuffy, weird, etc., we shouldn't seek to modify those things to accommodate people. That's exactly what God has set us apart to do. Rather, we should pray that God in his mercy would use us to show them the beauty of his design for his people. Sometimes Christians are apologetic to unbelievers for our belief, for our faith. Sometimes we're apologetic to unbelievers for doing what God commands us to do. But obedience to Christ's commands is what our public witness looks like. Obedience to Christ's commands is what our public witness looks like. Our evangelism strategy isn't to look like the world so that the world can access itself, but to look different from it. This is God's whole point in setting up part of people in the Old Testament. He sets a people group apart to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49 tells us this. And then God sets us apart as those who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, pursuing Christ, following him in obedience. God has set us apart in Jesus to tell the world who he is, not to cater to the whims of it. The same is true for the church as it is for Israel. If we conduct our business like the world, if we parent with worldly strategies, if we manage our money like the world, if we use retirement like the world, if we choose the world's ways over God's ways, what becomes of our witness in a world of darkness? 
We must reflect Christ by being set apart from the world while living in the world. But sometimes it is the fear of man that drives us to act more like the world than set apart from it. And that's where we need to properly place our fears. We fear uh, those who can rob us of eternal temporary things or the one who holds our eternity in his hand completely secure. A healthy fear would be the latter. Before we go, this is heavy stuff. What is happening with these two groups of people in John's gospel is heavy stuff. To see the light and to continue walking in darkness is heavy stuff. If you're here this morning and you're not sure what it looks like to trust Jesus, to walk in the light that he provides, come talk to one of us. Anyone that you see on the platform, anyone up front, come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what that looks like. This is heavy stuff. We cannot ignore the reality that there are two groups of people clearly outlined in this passage who see and reject. And remember, if you're in Christ, God's opinion of you does not change. And that fear that looks like the fear of judgment outside of Christ becomes a a loving relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father who cares deeply for us. God's opinion of you in Christ does not change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His sacrifice is eternally eternally sufficient to justify you before your Heavenly Father and will maintain your position as his child forever. When you slip into the fear of man, forgetting to properly place your fears, when you seek the glory of man over the glory that comes from God, simply turn back to Jesus and he will receive you as a child of God. Those who belong to God always return to him. If you've slid in any way, return to him this morning. He has lit that path with the light that Christ brings and receives you now and forever with open arms. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, we praise you that your opinion of us does not ever change. God, we pray this morning that we would properly place our fears. God, that we would see you as a heavenly father who loves us with a love that is eternal and unchanging. That your opinion of us, if we are in Christ, is always, ever before us. God, I pray this morning if there are those here who have not trusted in Jesus, that they would see the weight of the matter that their hearts would be open, that their minds would be illumined, God, they would desire more deeply to have the glory that comes from God above the glory that comes from man. And all of that is guaranteed because of Jesus' sacrifice, God. And so we thank you for that.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.